I love to see pictures of people celebrating happy occasions, don't you? In recent months, so many people have shared a picture of a gathering of friends or a family celebration, maybe a party with colleagues, first time getting back to the theater with a dear friend after such a long time away. Or maybe they missed the family reunion last year and so they were twice as happy to get together this year. You've seen some of these wonderful pictures, right? Maybe you have some on your own phone. Birthday parties. So many wonderful birthday parties. And I especially am seeing pictures of birthday parties for very young children who have perhaps missed a party or two in recent years. Is anyone familiar with what can sometimes happen for toddlers at birthday parties? Sometimes there's a lot of energy in the house to get ready for the event, and the adults might not have as much time for meeting the toddler's needs as usual. Or maybe nap schedules get adjusted in all the activity of the day. What if the special clothing doesn't really feel special at all, but just plain uncomfortable? And most importantly, are you familiar with the effects of large quantities of processed sugar <laughs> for very, very young kids? Let's say from a birthday cake, maybe. So instead of only pictures where everyone is smiling ear to ear, Let's be a little more true to life. Try to imagine with me that a grandparent is going to celebrate their grandchild's birthday. Let's imagine this loving grandparent and that there was perhaps some kind of a worldwide set of extenuating circumstances that made it harder to celebrate recently. And then finally, there is a party. All are so happy to celebrate, and this is their grandbaby. All the joy and none of the sleepless nights. The grandparent is so eager to express joy, so happy to bring a gift, can't wait for that hug, so excited. And perhaps upon arrival, the grandchild is already on overload and is upset. Let's say very, very upset, doesn't have any interest in that carefully selected gift, actually pushes it away when the gift is offered, certainly not up for a hug, tear-stained face, crying. You can imagine the rest, right? How should that grandparent react? The one who has been thrilled about this child from the very beginning? The one who has been filled with joy and unconditional love for this toddler from the very moment they learned that the baby was on the way? How should they respond? Should they snatch the birthday gift back? Withhold their love? How would you react? On a different level altogether, 
Let's think of another story of a good setting gone awry. This one takes place in a beautiful garden where everything was picture perfect until a certain interaction with a serpent and an apple, and then real life, complicated life, broken life, entered the stage. The fall, as we have come to know it, was the first appearance of the brokenness of our world. And it ushered in with it the distance experienced between people the hurt we cause to one another, the brokenness in our world itself, and the estrangement that we feel from God. It opened the door to warfare and harms of endless varieties. And it highlights for us this question that we have been pondering this Lenten season. What happens next in light of this brokenness? How is it that we as fallible humans can be reconciled to God? What does it mean to be delivered? And how does that come about? Among the many different voices that speak to this question is someone named John Duns Scotus. Born in the year 1266, a Franciscan philosopher and theologian. When Scotus began his work, many people were guided in their thoughts about redemption by the language of debt, atonement, or blood sacrifice. And they drew upon references to those themes in the Gospels and the letters of Paul. But Scotus instead was drawn to other pages of scripture, and his dissenting opinion was valued and included within the life of the church. Scotus turned to the first chapters of Colossians and Ephesians and the first chapter of John's Gospel. We were chosen in Christ before the world was made, as the hymn in Ephesians puts it. And Scotus focused on the unconditional freedom of our all-powerful God. Nothing could constrain God. Nothing could limit God. No qualifiers or conditions can prevent God from acting. God's not bound to some external set of standards that need to be met before God could offer free grace. Salvation for Scotus depends solely on God's free acceptance. And God never merely reacts, but always supremely and freely acts, and always acts out of love. Richard Rohr, Contemporary Franciscan monk and founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation has written extensively on the ideas of John Duns Scotus and has significantly impacted my thinking on this topic. Rohr writes, Jesus did not come 
to change the mind of God about humanity. It did not need changing. Jesus came to change the mind of humanity about God. God in Jesus moved people beyond the counting, weighing, and punishing model that the ego prefers, that the ego prefers, and moved us to the utterly new world that Jesus offered, where God's abundance has made any economy of merit, sacrifice, or atonement both unhelpful and unnecessary. Jesus undid once and for all as we hear in the book of Hebrews, all notions of human and animal sacrifice and replaced them with his new economy of grace, which is the very heart of the gospel revolution. End quote. This way of understanding atonement or redemption or deliverance could simply be stated as love, God's love. But I had been thinking of it as irresistible love with a bit of a nod to the theme of irresistible grace that we find in our faith tradition. But it's interesting, we do resist it at times, don't we? For so many different reasons, things we can name and maybe things we cannot name we do resist, at times, the offer of love. I think perhaps it's more accurate to think of this as unconditional love. Love that has absolutely no conditions whatsoever. God who is love, pure love, abundant love, unconditional love, simply loves us because God is perfectly free to do so. God does not have to comply with any external set of conditions that would then permit God to love us, as if God were somehow weaker than some arbitrary set of requirements. Our sovereign God is free to love us, and God does, always, endlessly, completely, our human systems of merit and achievement subtly center the self as they focus on qualifications and accomplishments. But God in Christ Jesus turns the system upside down through grace alone inviting us into reconciliation and union with God. From our vantage point, we see the towering effects of sin, including original sin, that has so dominated the worldview of many since its debut in the Garden of Eden. Original sin overshadows all people, all mortals who are fallible. From where we stand, brokenness sometimes looms large. But could it be that God has a different perspective than we do? President of Union Theological Seminary in New York, 
Serene Jones writes, Grace is more original than sin. Grace is more original than sin. In an interview, she goes on to say that God's love is bigger than sin, that grace wins, that sinfulness does not have the final word because love is greater and more persistent than sin. Grace is more original than sin. And if we think back to the garden, perhaps we would say that grace, the free gift of life and beauty and every good thing, is more original than sin in that it preceded sin. God's idea of the wonder of creation came before any blemishes that might mar it. God proactively created life, knowing full well how it would play out. God's original action here was grace. From before all of time, the triune God extended grace. And as we look at our scripture passage for today, we find a text written in the name of Paul as somewhat of a collection of parting thoughts for Timothy, a co-worker in the good news. And this collection of thoughts encourages us to rely on the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to God's own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. As that mantle of leadership was being passed on to Timothy and the young community of faith, the eternal grace that was from before all time was a foundation for them to stand on. It sounds like John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. All things came into being through him. What has come into being in him was life. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. It sounds like Colossians. In Christ Jesus, all things in heaven and on earth were created. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself. It sounds like Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Before any human errors might have occurred, God's first word was a word of life and grace and love. 
and no other subsequent words could undermine or detract from the power of that first word. Grace is more original than sin. And by grace, love continues to transform us. The transformation that comes from the cross happens in our lives as we see what the cross reveals. Scoutus and Rohr point out that it is there at the cross that we see clearly our violence and the violence of the world. The cross showed us the worst possible consequence of retributive justice. But the violence is ours, not God's. If we attribute the violence of the cross to God, then we have permission, in a way, to use means of violence in our own systems in this world. And if we flip through the pages of history, we see that the church too often did just that. But if God is not violent, we have no excuse to be violent. Instead, the cross was one of God's greatest revelations. Christ Jesus came to live among us so that we could look upon the one we had pierced and see there on full display the unconditional love of God. The cross revealed a power far greater than violence, far greater than sin, the power of the unconditional love of Christ Jesus. Nothing could hinder the love of God because God's steadfast love endures forever. And as we look upon the cross, we are transformed away from systems of violence and toward the union that we have with God through the love of Christ Jesus. Instead of atonement, we find at one as we are reconciled, restored, delivered, united with the great love of God. It was never, never a problem for God to love God's very own children. It was never a problem. God has always been free to love and has shown us that unconditional love most clearly in the person of Christ Jesus. Back to our imagined birthday party. You could not convince me that a few tears would in any way hinder the love of a caring grandparent. Of course, the brokenness of the world is on a completely different scale altogether from any such interaction, but so too is the love of God, which is endlessly larger than we can imagine, 
infinitely stronger than the efforts of any human to undo it, stretching from before all time and until eternity. As Richard Rohr puts it, we all need to know that God does not love us because we are good. God loves us because God is good. Nothing humans can do will ever decrease or increase God's eternal eagerness to love. Thanks be to God. Amen.